morning. I just want to start off by saying thank you for everyone who donated candy or was out volunteering for our fall festival last night. It was a resounding success as we had probably over 200 guests that came in. I figured it was a, a break in the rain and people wanted to get out and we were the first ones going after that rain stopped. So uh, we gave out about 140 a little uh, pumpkins that have the truths of the gospel to all the kids that were there. So it was a great event, and so thank you for everyone who made that possible. <clears throat> so we are continuing through our trek of the Gospel of John, and we're now at the end, the final, the culmination, the pinnacle of this gospel, which is the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, and because that is more of a reflective kind of time that we want to spend time thinking about what that means for us and the truths that are contained there within, uh, we decided to redo the order, as Emily kind of said. You've, you're like, why is he speaking so soon? Well, that's because as we flow out of the message, hopefully the songs that come after the message uh, will give time for us to reflect on these truths of what Christ has accomplished for us. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. This day that we can gather as your people. This, this day we can gather as a church and praise your holy name. Lord, we pray for this time as we open up your word that we can see who you are and what you have accomplished for us. We pray that you can move through the truths of your word and that it it comes alive in our minds and our hearts so that we can follow you with all of who we are. Lord, we pray for this time as we reflect on that wonderful cross that we can never forget what you have done for us and what it means. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. People love conspiracy theories. I don't know if you know that, but people really love them. Even people who you, you think are, you know, have it all together, you talk about talking some like conspiracy theories, and you'll be surprised who's all like, oh yeah, have you heard? Like what really went down? People love them. I think they love them so much because they're trying to make sense of sometimes a seemingly out of control or nonsensical world, and they want to have someone in charge or someone who's kind of bringing it all together. They want those people in the back room who are smoking, planning how things are going to happen. And so they love conspiracy theories. Think about all the things people have conspiracy theories about, such as uh, the moon landing and how it was fake and how there's a government conspiracy that never really happened. Or maybe the JFK assassination and who was on that grassy knoll. I mean, all these things that people want to talk about or even UFOs and how the government has known about UFOs forever and how they're covering it up. Or even the earth being flat and we're not on a globe. But yet there's a conspiracy theory kind of that says they're keeping that away from us. There's even people who believe that space is fake. That there's nothing up there. And so people want to kind of make sense of this nonsensical world or this world that kind of seems like it's out of control. And so they want to, these theories that kind of wrap it up in a neat little package for our consumption. People love that because things happen and we're confused why they happen. That's the truth of our life. 
Things happen, and we see we seem to be out of control, and we want some control. And so sometimes it's easier for us to say, well, there's got to be someone, someone in charge. And so when we come to the Gospel of John and we see the crucifixion, we see something that looks like it's out of control. We see something that looks like it's confusing and has no point, but yet the truth is there is someone in control. There is someone behind it. And it's not who the people think it is. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of John. And we'll be starting in chapter 19, verse 1. And we had just read last week about how Jesus was given over to Pilate and the Roman soldiers and how he had kind of gone through this false trial and Pilate had questioned him. And so picking up this story, in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him and saying, Hell, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, talking to the crowd and to the chief priests, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given, to, given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in, er in Aramaic, <coughs> Gabbatha, now it was the day of preparation for, of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The, priest, the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic, Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, and in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When we look at this text, 
the pinnacle of the gospel, as Jesus goes to the cross for us, we realize the truth that Jesus is the crucified King. That's the truth of that we're here, here, here in this gospel. That while Pilate mocked that he was king, and why the the um, the Jewish leaders kind of set it up and manipulated the courts to kind of point to the fact that he was claiming to be king, the truth is he is the king. This is why it's such an important fact that he comes from the lineage of David, that he was the promised one, the long-awaited Messiah who was going to fulfill the promise to David of a king who would sit on the throne forever. This is who Jesus is. But he's a king who would go to the cross for his people. Jesus is the crucified king. And when we look at the mockery put upon our king, it just shows how little did they know that Jesus, who the Colossians describes him as the, the visible representation of the invisible God, and yet they treated him like a criminal. The one who Psalm 104 describes as clothing himself in light. Or Isaiah talks about how the train, of his t- the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. They would array him in a purple cloth to mock him. The one who Revelation describes as being described as precious stone and sitting on a throne with a rainbow arrayed behind it, they would seek to crown with thorns. They sought to mock And these mockeries, these steps of mocking who he was were just pale reflections of the truth that Jesus is truly a king. And he is our crucified king. Jesus is the crucified king. And that shocks us. When we read about who Jesus is and how he accomplished salvation, it shocks us. This is, this, uh, those of us that have been in church for a while are used to it, and so used to it, sometimes we're desensitized to this fact. But the fact is that Jesus, the one who is to save us, is now going to the cross, and all the people who are around him were wondering what is happening, and they're shocked at these turns of events. They're wondering what is happening. And they're wondering who is in charge here. Who's in charge of this? And we look at the text and we can ask the same question. Who is in charge of these events? And we look to Jesus and say, is Jesus in charge? But the text really drives this understanding or this this picture of him being in the hands of their soldiers. Just look at all those words that are arrayed against Jesus, these verbs that are put against him that they took Jesus. They brought Jesus. They arrayed Jesus. They flogged Jesus. They struck Jesus. They beat Jesus. And then they crucified Jesus. And we can imagine people sitting there looking upon this and saying, what is happening? Who is in charge here? Was Pilate in charge? He was the one with authority. He was the one that had the Roman army behind him. He was the one who was carrying out the execution. He was the one that commanded the detachment of the, of the Roman soldiers that would crucify Jesus. Was he in charge here? Well, we see very quickly that Jesus, uh, Pilate's not in charge. That he was pushed back into a corner and that the Jewish leaders were manipulating the situation and they were kind of leveraging these, these accusations saying that if he wouldn't kill Jesus, he would not be a friend of Caesar. 
And we see him feeling kind of uh, pressed against these things and not really, he didn't even feel in charge, even though he sought to release Jesus, but yet could not do it. And even when he was talking to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you should probably should be working with me, kind of talk with me. I can work with you on your defense. I have the power to either free you or crucify you. And Jesus makes it very clear, no, Pilate, you don't have the power. Any power you have over me was given to you from above. Well, then, were the Jewish leaders in charge? They had the conspiracy. They were meeting in the back room. They had set this up. They were moving events and stirring up the crowd to crucify Jesus. Were they in charge? But not, they're not in charge because they can't even move without Pilate, Pilate say so. And they can't even leverage the authority to kill someone without Pilate actually carrying it through. And so we see they're not in charge either. And so when we read this text, we have to ask that question, who is in charge here? What is happening? And the truth of the matter is the person who looked least likely to be in charge, the one who seemed at the, that hope, helpless at the hands of the Roman soldiers, Jesus was in charge of all of this. Jesus put himself in that situation. Jesus could have gotten him out himself out of that situation, but yet Jesus went to the cross to save us, and he was in charge. We see this from the, through the whole gospel again and again. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to cross. He knew he was going to die, and he said, this is the plan. He said that again and again, and it seemed like his disciples couldn't pick up on understanding what was happening, but he made it clear. Way back in John 10, verse 18, he talked about how he would lay down his life. And that it was not anyone who's going to take his life from him, but he would lay it down of his own free will. We saw in the garden, when the soldiers came for him, how he was in complete control. That with a word, they fell on their butts as he said, I am he. He did not have to go with them. He was in charge. I love how in Matthew 26, verse 53, he talks to Peter after Peter strikes the, the servant and cuts off his ears and says, hey man, Peter, what are you doing? I don't need you carrying a sword for me. For if I asked my father, he would send 12 legions of angels to protect me. I'm in complete command here. I have at my beck and call 60,000 angelic warriors who could wipe everyone off this face of this planet. I'm in charge here, and yet I go willingly, for this is the purpose for which I have come. And we see that very clear spelled out through the gospel, and we should see it in this text today that Jesus was in charge. That should give us encouragement, not just for the crucifixion and the cross itself, but when we look at our own life and we see a life seemingly out of control, when we look at our own life and we see ourselves being in the pits, when we look at our own life and we don't understand what is happening and we want to cry out, who is in charge here? We can remember that Jesus is in charge, that our Heavenly Father is in charge. That the one who loves us so much that he would send Jesus to die for us is in charge. And we can have comfort 
that the one who loves us, the one who is orchestrating our salvation, is bringing about history as he sees fit for our good to be conformed to the image of his son. We know the truth. He is in charge here. That the crucified king, Jesus, reigns. Because Jesus is the crucified king. Then why would this be important that Jesus is in charge here because the cross has always been God's plan. This is not plan B. This is not, oh my goodness, i got to somehow figure out how to save people who have gone astray from me. From the very get-go, God has decreed that His Son would come and save His people through giving His life for His people. That the cross was God's plan. The whole gospel has been leading here. John, from the very get-go, has been leading us down this path where he said, this is the plan where Jesus has come to save and provide redemption for his people. This is how it plays out. The steps are important, but the end result is set, that he will save us by dying for us. Because Jesus spoke about his death and the manner in which he was going to die. That he was going to be lifted up. That he was going to be on the cross. He compared himself to salvation stories in the Old Testament. That when people looked upon him, they could be saved. Again and again, Jesus reminds us that this is God's plan. And so we look at this account. And it's interesting how John makes it very clear that Jesus was handed over to the chief priests to be taken and crucified. Why does, it make, why does John put so much emphasis that the chief priests are the ones who are responsible for Jesus dying? Well, there's, it's not coincidence. It is done with purpose. It's because going way back to John chapter 1 is fulfilling what John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right there, John the Baptist is comparing Jesus to the sacrificial lamb. And so now these chief priests who would perform the sacrifices for the people of God were taking Jesus, unbeknownst to them, as the sacrifice which would save all of God's people. And so we see here the chief priests take him out outside the city as Hebrews 13, 12 says us that Jesus was crucified outside the camp at this place uh, that was where criminals were executed, a place where they actually had sacrifices to cleanse the whole temple and all the implements. And we see Jesus fulfilling all those things as he was sacrificed by the priests for people to be saved. This is the history of the whole Old Testament being summed up and completed and fulfilled in Jesus. As the book of Numbers reminds us that these sacrifices would happen outside the camp, as we know of the scapegoat where the chief priest would lay the, the hands on a, on a goat and confess the sins of the people on him and then have the goat, goat wander away outside the camp. Again, we see this imagery of this is what's happening. Jesus outside the camp taking our sin upon himself so that we could be saved the perfect sacrifice the lamb of god bringing people to back to god that the scapegoat exiled to bring back us the exiles once again into god's family in the relationship with god again and again we see this fulfilled we can look back into Deuteronomy 21 about how it said anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. And Jesus hanging on that cross, the tree, 
was cursed for us. That Jesus, who deserved no curse, Jesus, who had no curse, the sinless one, would hang upon that tree so that us, who are cursed by sin, separated from God, now can be freed from that as the curse is poured on Jesus. And the wrath of God is satisfied. And the love of God is poured out into us who confess the name of Jesus, our crucified King. This is the truth when we read this gospel and read the crucifixion. This is the sum of the, the gospel, the good news that our, our, our Savior, the Redeemer, came and lived that life that we could not live. Our Redeemer came and saved us so by fulfilling the law, always being before God perfect in His, his actions and His thoughts, that He was sinless. Something we could not do. Something that Adam, the first man, failed to do. But Jesus comes and fulfills it completely and perfectly. This is the king who would die for his people. This is the one who would now then step into a place where he was not, didn't deserve to be. That he would step condemned and die in our stead. That on that cross, that he would take our punishment that we deserved so that we could have that relationship that he had with our God. Jesus is the crucified king. The king who dies for his people. Think of how amazing the gospel truly is. That Jesus is a king. I've said it. I think the, 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 the passage points to it. But when we start to look at who Jesus is, how amazing it truly is that he is our king. He is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is truly God from truly God. He is the one through whom all creation was made. He is the one who, up, who sustains all creation with his word. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who's destined and, and promised to reign forever. And he's the one who's going to return and judge the living in the dead. This is our king. And yet, how does he choose to reign? How does he choose to save us? By coming down to be one of us. He assumed full humanity upon himself. He lived as we could not live, and then he died in our stead. He died for us, his people, the innocent for the guilty, condemned in our place, took all of our sin, past, present, and future, so that we could be with him forever. So see your king as he hangs on that cross. And he did it for you. Pilate says again and again, as he parades Jesus out, Behold the man! And then mocking the, the Jewish leaders, he brings him out again. Behold your king! And the truth of the fact is when we read this, we should say that to ourselves as we see Jesus heading to the cross. Behold, our crucified King who saves us through His death, who did what we could not do, who now loves us to the extent that we can hardly even fathom that He would give His life for us to bring us to God. And so look upon Him and know the Father's love. Gaze upon Him and know that you are saved if you believe in Him. 
behold him and be transformed as he works in your life. Jesus is our crucified king. I want to just end with the words of Paul in the book of Philippians as he illustrates this so well in Philippians 2. It says this, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That happens when we see him and know him as our crucified king. As we share the truth of him with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is King. Jesus is our Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Dear Father, praise be to Your name. Thank You for this, um, this Gospel that we can read it, we can understand it, we can come to know the truth that You have saved us, Lord. And that You saved us through Jesus going to the cross for us. We praise your name, Lord, and we ask that you continue to bring this truth back and back into our minds and to our hearts. I pray for anyone who might be on the fence about whether this is true or not, that they can examine the truth of the Gospels, that they can dive into it, that they can ask the questions they need to ask, and they can look at you and see your love pray for those of us who are confirmly convinced about this truth. That we can see it again and be reminded again and praise you, Lord, because of it. That you have saved us. Not because of anything we have done. Not because we're good enough. Not because we deserve it. Not because of who we are. But because of who you are. And what you have done. And that you give it freely of your grace. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, take communion together.